This season of Life on a Plate is sponsored by Bart Ingredients, whose extensive range of quality herbs, spices, seasonings and pastes are all available at Waitrose. Bart offers so many simple, delicious ways to elevate your cooking. From aromatic whole spices to handy blends and pastes such as Ra's El Hanout or black garlic paste, they'll help you build incredible depth of flavour and create beautiful dishes. What's more, with over 50 years of experience working with producers all over the globe, Bart's guarantee their ingredients are grown and harvested responsibly with care for people and the planet. So whether you're just starting out on your cooking journey or you're, forgive the pun, a seasoned chef, you can relax and trust Bart to open up a world of exciting flavour. Go to waitrose.com forward slash Bart to discover the range. Hello and welcome to the second season of Life on a Plate, the podcast from Waitrose. In each episode, we talk to some very special people about what food means to them, asking about their comfort foods and favorite dishes, their food memories and go-to ingredients, and finding out a lot more about each of our guests in the process. Hi, Jimmy. How are you? Hi, Alison. I'm pretty good. How are you doing? I'm all right, thank you. Been up to much? You said it with a real air of, uh, we've got a secret there, but um, you know what I've been up to because excitingly, we met up at a, you know, social distance and all that. Um, and we had a coffee, didn't we? We did. We had a coffee and you um, repaid the lemon drizzle with some recommendations of some bakes. I brought along some things that I thought you might enjoy. Um, I, I feel slightly bad that I didn't bake stuff in return, but I think I was just like, do you know what? What have I got? I've got maybe um, a bit of a sense of what is quite nice rather than giving you some disappointing brownies or disappointing cookies. So what did you think? What do you think? I just thought, I thought you're a restaurant critic and you clearly know your stuff. Flora was a bakery that I'd heard about, Mm. but never been to. And um, you have put it high on my agenda to go back because the three things were really nice. The hot cross buns, the biscuit, the brown butter cakes, they were all delicious. And I was just going to have one and I just kind of, I found it quite hard to be limited. So I managed to la- get them to last <laughs> Friday and Saturday. Oh, excellent news. I'm really glad. I did feel slightly bad. I was like, what's the correct level? Like kind of how many do I think Alison's <laughs> going to want to have? So I'm glad to know that I got it. I hopefully got it. Bag on. And those delicious baked goods you gave me are the perfect segue in to our next guest, who is Tom Allen. Tom Allen, who is presenter of Bake Off The Professionals. He's co-host of An Extra Slice with Joe Brown. And more recently, he's also been on Celebrity Bake Off. So he really does know his baking. Yes, that is actually a perfect link and um tom is of course a fantastically funny comedian who Mm -hmm. people might have seen on mock the week on eight out of ten cats hosting uh the apprentice you're fired um but he's also which i'm really really excited about he is a recently uh minted author of Mm. a uh, acclaimed memoir called no shame which i really really want to talk to him about particularly because we both grew up 
quite close to each other. He talks quite often in his comedy about Bromley. I grew up and went to school just down the road in Bexley Heath. So what I'm saying is you're going to have to just stop me making this completely about South East London and just really kind of go in. I'll do my best to keep it onto the food. On very specific details. But um, but yeah, he's a, he's a fantastically funny man. Every time he's on TV, I laugh and laugh and I just can't wait to uh, to get a little bit more about his life in relation to baking and uh, yeah, his upbringing as well. Can't wait. Shall we get on and talk to him? I think we should. Here is our conversation with Tom Allen. Well, Tom Allen, thank you so much for joining us. It's uh, wonderful to have you here. I wanted to start with um, your book, No Shame. It's really, really beautifully written and witty and wise and really sort of eloquently articulates some of the things we all feel about feeling like outsiders and eccentricities and things like that. What's the feedback been like in terms of the book and the experience of writing it? Well, um, you know, it's been a really nice experience. I always felt like I'd been an outsider and a bit of an eccentric. And I'd at times done really odd things and behaved in sort of strange ways as a teenager in suburbia, you know, suburbia. And um, and I thought, actually, I'm going to write it all down in all its kind of uh, cringe you know, cringing mm. detail. And so I wrote it down. I thought people might go, what the hell are you talking about? You are <laughs> a very strange person. But ha- happily, in a way, I've come to realize that lots of people have gone, oh, I had exactly the same experience or I had a very similar time. And I had, um, I felt like an outsider because fundamentally, I suppose everybody feels like an outsider at some point. Um, and, and so it, it, for, for me, I'm really glad that I wrote about it in, in the detail I did and just sort of the times when I do something that didn't make sense at the time. And in a way, even coming to write it down, it still doesn't completely make sense. But I suppose it, <laughs> it has a bit more. It, for me, it suddenly was like, oh, I see now why I did that. Like as a teenager, right. I was being picked on at school. And the people, I wasn't out or anything, but people were saying, like, oh, you're gay. And I remember being beaten up for it. And, um, and I was like, I'm trying to hide it. Um, I don't know how they know. But, um, at the same time, I was like, I thought rather than trying to sort of assimilate and blend in and, and not, you know, not get picked on anymore, I th- stumbled upon this Julie Walters monologue that Alan Bennett had written about in Talking Heads. And so for the school cabaret, I decided this was what I had to do for no real reason. It didn't make any sense like to anybody. And the teacher was like, why? Why are you doing this? Like, you don't, you know, it doesn't. And, um, and there was no sort of means of kind of like researching or like finding out what to wear or anything. Cause you know, you know, she's, it's, and it's a, it's a monologue. It's a really beautiful monologue, but sad. I mean, totally inappropriate for someone in year nine to do in a school cabaret. But I was like, no, I have to do it. I just love it. But and then when I wrote it down, and my editor said, "So after that, do you know? Do you want to write about how like you knew who you were then, and people left you alone, and they respected you?" And I was like, "No, because they didn't. Just like <laughs> yeah. you know, they yeah. just yeah. carried on being odd and strange and and an outsider, and and just sort of learned to embrace it more. I suppose that's what came of it, really. But yeah, well, I feel like that truthfulness, that true reaction that isn't the kind of Hollywood and then they all accepted me for who I was right. is is a lot more true to life and a lot more relatable and refreshing for people to hear and read. Oh, well, thank you for saying that. I hope so. In terms of your outsiderdom and your eccentricities, um, did that manifest with food? Mm. Did that kind of come out? Did you have a different sort of taste to those around you? Well, funny you say this, yeah, because I was always bored in the summer holidays. I think we give kids I mean, I mean, the bless them now. I mean, after this mm. last year, but we give kids like this a um, huge amount of time, six weeks in the summer 
to just go like, right, well, you know, you live this kind of like really like disciplined life where it's like, you know what you're doing every minute of the day. I mean, when you go home, you have to do homework for the next day and stuff. So you're, your time is always managed. And then you have the six weeks where they're like, oh, do what you want. You go, what? I have no idea how to fill it. <laughs> yeah. And I found it, yeah. I found it quite depressing, actually, to not have a purpose. I remember that very vividly as a kid. And then beating myself up because I was like, I've waited for this time off and I've, I don't know how to use it. And so my grandmother, um, who, who didn't, you know, it wasn't like she was a particularly confident chef or anything. Um mm. And she, um, my mum's on my nan, um, and she was like, oh, I know what we could do. Why don't you make a cake? And so I made a Victoria sponge. And I was like, oh, finally, I've got something I can enjoy doing. And so I would make loads of cakes. And from that, I got more into reading uh, cookery books and sort oh, of um, so. like, and we had, so we had dad from the book club at work where he worked at the coach company, Clarks of London. Um, he's a coach driver. <laughs> and um, at the book club, there'd been a book about Cordon Bleu cooking, which he'd for some reason bought. And so we just we had that. So I just read wow. that all the time. While my mum and dad were watching Coronation Street, I'd just be like looking at like how to make a sabion. Um, <laughs> and then, Did you cook from it? I mean, not really, because of course, with anything like that, you need so many expensive ingredients, which when you're like 13, your parents maybe aren't so keen Genius. to be like, what? You know, you want to go and buy set mushrooms. And yeah. cookery, cook- I need some truffles, Dad. Yeah, I need to, yeah, exactly, yeah. Well, why haven't we got any truffle oil? Oh, I don't know. What do you want bleeding truffle oil for? So then, and then I got more, <laughs> and then I got more into cooking and I've really, and Ready Steady Cook was on the television. I loved that. Yeah. And got mm. really into cooking programs. Like on Tuesday night, Delia Smith would be on, you know, just shimmying around in her conservatory um, with her, you know, very calm, just, and realised how soothing cooking programs are and um, like but I remember all those programs and just loving them and loving this kind of enthusiasm for for I don't know just doing things a bit better like Delia Smith like Mm. we had complete cookery parts one and two never had part three don't know why (laughs) mum never got that far mum always felt like she wasn't mum never really felt very never felt very confident as a chef but even now like she does the best Yorkshire puddings I've ever had. Mm, um, mm. And so, but but it was a sort of time, I think, when people, like in the 80s and 90s, when people were starting to go, oh, I didn't know we were allowed mm. to, do, I didn't know I was allowed to make a pie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was it in contrast to what you were eating in the house then? Like, was it very kind of 90s, 80s or whatever? I guess, I guess so. And for convenience and like I said, mum, mum didn't always feel that confident as a cook. So we'd often have like, uh, you know, be like frozen things and stuff in the week, especially, or some mm-hmm. sort of quite simple things. But the, it seems like the school canteen, which, I mean, what on earth was in those burgers? It was so <laughs> unhealthy. Like disc- or donuts, which were just tasted of like fat. And, and it was so gross. We'd like, the only good thing about it was the white icing on the top, which was, again, probably nothing natural about them. They were so like, oh, God, I was so, but it was like this treat that like, or that square sponge with pink icing on top of it. And it just yes. like, School dinner cake. School dinner cake, which felt like, you know, again, like a lovely treat. And you could put it in your blazer pocket and eat throughout the morning. Horrible. Absolutely disgusting. <laughs> um, and, you know, every now and then they'd like try and do a theme day, which I'd always embraced, but the other kids didn't really. And they'd largely throw it at the wall. There was, a, I talk about this in the book, there was a piece of cucumber which got thrown at a piece of um, sick form artwork on the canteen wall. That piece of cucumber stayed there for my whole school career. <laughs> There was no regard for like fancy cooking. But so I got, so it's sort of through that sort of permission of like my nan going, come on, we'll do this. And, um, and I just sort of, then I felt very at home in, in the kitchen and loved doing things and loved making my own dinner and loved cooking for other people in the house. And would, like mum and dad would let me do like the Christmas dinner and stuff, which was a real, oh, fantastic. I mean, I was yeah. a very precocious 
<laughs> child. So it wasn't really endearing. It was probably unbearable for everybody. But. Would you have taken over doing the cooking during the week when you're at school or just during the holidays? Um, during the week and in the holidays, yeah. uh, if I could, yeah, because often I was the first one home. So what might you have started to cook? Well, even things like, I mean, it sounds so basic, but like an omelette. And, uh, you know, mm. I mean, Delia, Delia did bring out that book, didn't she, where she taught people to boil an egg? Yeah. How mm. to cook, picture of an egg on the front. Everyone's like, I know how to cook an egg, Delia. <laughs> Not everybody does. Not everybody does. And so things like that. And then I moved up to sort of um, cutting out recipes from my nan's magazines. Yeah. Um, so like a, maybe a barbecue chicken uh, or a lemon chicken or, um, and then, and then I started, then I got really ahead of myself by the time I was about 14, 15 and started to um, wanting to throw dinner parties based. I mean, my parents are like, what? You want to throw dinner? What's a dinner party? <laughs> oh, well, I don't know about that. Well, because oh, my mum doesn't, you know, like it's very house proud, but in a way that doesn't involve inviting people round. <laughs> so it's this kind of like abstract experiment to always have the house kind of looking perfect, but never shown to anybody. Always no, ready, always, but never yeah. used. Why is that? Yeah, is that? Yeah. I mean, it's a very suburban <laughs> thing, isn't it? It really is. Yeah. No, I remember going around to friends' houses and, you know, living room, you weren't allowed to go in the living room. And like, <laughs> yeah. you could sit yeah, on the sofa. That's the guest like, room. Like, you couldn't, yeah, yeah, no? yeah. No? Yeah, it was always being saved for best. Yeah. Oh, you bet. <laughs> Although I do remember for my 13th birthday being allowed a dinner party as a birthday party when oh, I was 13. Oh, so And that was it. That was the <gasps> end of birthday parties. But, you know, at 13, it was a dinner party. Mm. But that's good because I think, like, do you remember, do you remember this? Um, when I was a teenager, like, sometimes if somebody's parents went abroad um, or, or wherever, really mm. just went away for the weekend um, they would sometimes be left in charge of the house I'm sure they were like too mm. young but they'd inevitably throw a house party yes. and then um, and then like there'd always be this fear of like what if gate crashes come there might be gate crashes coming <laughs> there was always in this fear that like basically kids from the other school were going to come down and beat us up trash the parents house trash the parents house and it was that time when do you remember somebody on Radio 1 um phoned in about a house party they were going to and it got announced on Radio 1 and like it basically like, this poor family house got trashed because like some oh, DJ no. thought it was like a, a rave or something and announced yeah. it and suddenly like thousands of people turned up and the house was <laughs> trashed and I was like that sounds terrible that sounds awful That's yeah. I would hate that so if ever I did get yeah. invited to a party I'd feel like I had to go but I just I didn't know I didn't like teenage parties you just all sort of stood round in the kitchen with the lights off and just like you know drinking horrible beers out of a blue bag and just sort of all like Pops, and people just getting overexcited and crying because the person they fancied got off with somebody else. And I hated it. So I just used to go around cleaning up um, and tidying up because I always wanted to be friends with the mums. Yeah, you talk about that. And um, in the book as well, you talk about being kind of born a 46-year-old man, essentially, and kind of being drawn to older people and, you know, your mum's friends and kind of spending time with your nan. Were you aware at the time that it was something that was out of the ordinary for you to be doing and kind of in terms of people around you. Yeah, I was aware that it was different, but I think because mm. my mum quite liked to be like, oh, look at it, oh, we don't know where we got him from. Oh, yeah, I know he talks partially. And <laughs> I think I was aware that I was different, but somehow I knew I didn't want to fight it. You know, I didn't want to be, I sort of was like, well, I'm different. Not to oversimplify, because it wasn't quite as simple as this, but part of me, I think, was going, oh, I, I know I'm different. I can either try and blend in, which will take more energy, and more, mm. and I'll be more unhappy. Or I could just go the other way and be just totally different and embrace it. And just be yeah, like, well, yeah. you think I'm a bit different. I'm going to show you how different I am. And then <laughs> I, I would, you know, like throw dinner parties for my birthday and um, 
And like there was a, there was a, I talk about it in the book, but there was a boy I fancied and I had this crush on him, but there's no way I could tell him, you know, at my school, it was unthinkable. It seemed to come out. Um, so I was just like, I had to bear it, but I was just, I had this like strangulated way of telling him by throwing a dinner party. Like I was <laughs> Hyacinth Bouquet, like, and I got obsessed with, I don't know. I, I was just talking to a friend about this and she said, you know, it's, I got obsessed with etiquette manuals and like laying the table in a very formal manner. Go to Bromley Central Library. Jimmy, I don't know if ever you've got on the 269 bus to Bromley. <laughs> yes, the 269. 269, great bus, great bus. Um, and, um, and go to the library and take out books on etiquette like that have been written in the 1920s. There's one Emily Post's uh, guide to modern etiquette in the 1920s in America. Like absolute nonsense for what, I, you know, my life in suburban Bromley and she's got advice on like how to speak to, how to speak to your butler. And, um... <laughs> Quite often you talk to comedians and they talk about their school days and growing up and they talk about, particularly if they feel like outsiders as well, that humour is this defence mechanism or like they kind of, they use it as a kind of shield. Were you aware that you were being funny? I think I think so, yes. And I think I kind of learned to embody it and kind mm. of embrace it and actually kind of go, well, I, you know what, I'm going to just sort of celebrate that and, and actually laughing about it to an extent is part of that. Even though I wasn't able to laugh about, say, fancying the, the boy in my year, but I was able to sort of embrace it a bit and, and know that it was kind of an, a, a sort of quirk that people found perhaps endearing. And I suppose there was a sort of... Uh, a, a sort of survival mode in part of that it's sort of you know kind of going like well I guess if they're laughing they're, they're not going to beat me <laughs> yeah. up did the dinner parties go to plan or did you have any disasters they took a lot of planning a lot of uh, energy was inputted on, yeah. into them by me um, and again like I like practice laying the table with cutlery that my mum and dad had like bought over the years and I'd added to with my like birthday money by going to the army <laughs> and navy to buy fish knives and um <laughs> And, uh, and stuff like that. And so, but I'm like, oh, you're gonna get all that stuff out now. Oh, you're a bit making a mess. Oh, what are you doing? Why you got all this out? Oh, oh, good. And, and so, um, <laughs> there was all that sort of preparation. And then when the day came, I was quite nervous to invite like friends around for a birthday lunch or a, a birthday dinner. And, um, and no, they were very nice with it, but often like I'd get frustrated because they didn't know when to take their napkins out of its beautifully <laughs> sculptured form and place on the lap. And I'd be like, um, excuse me, I'm coming up with the first course, never starter. Starter was deemed very non-new by um, Emily Post. Um, uh, but first course and, um, and and things like that. So I'd be annoyed about that. And then I remember, so the, the one I threw that I detail in the book about thinking it would be this way of me kind of showing this guy how much I liked him. And he would be like, ah, oh, this is who I want to be with. Even mm. though I am a like 14, 15 year old straight boy, this is what I want. <laughs> How how did you find your way into comedy then? Because you've you've spoken about you you have acted as well in the past. Like um, I think um, uh, Fanny Craddock uh, biopic was one of your early jobs, fittingly. Oh yes, I thought I wanted to be an actor because that was the sort of only outlet I was aware of. Where it was a world that you know you could be different and you could be kind of. Um, I want to say, the word I want to say is exuberant, but what I mean is show off. Um, <laughs> where you could be a show off and 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 sort of be creative and be kind of. Um, different but but i i realized that actually sometimes being an actor you know you get to have to do all those boring plays and wait for other people to say their lines before you get to say yours lines that have been written <laughs> by somebody else and um and then some friends suggested i try stand up and i thought what a ridiculous idea and i kind of liked the idea of it as a dare really um i was about 21 
and um, and with their support, I just had a go at it. And I sort of thought it's such a stupid thing for me to do. I'm so I'd be so ridiculous there because it felt very blokey. Stand up felt very, mm. you know, it was blokes telling jokes about the way mm. they saw the world. And there wasn't it wasn't vulnerable. It wasn't it wasn't sort of it wasn't a place to kind of be quirky. The only person I knew doing that was Victoria Wood, mm-hmm. and I loved Victoria Wood. So I, I sort of had that had her as a kind of beacon somewhere in the distance. But I, mm. I, I started doing stand up, and as I say, it was sort of as a dare, really, as a sort of like, what's the most outrageous thing I could do? And and so I did it, but it seemed to go well. People seemed to sort of like me being a bit different, um, and so I ran with it. But I, and I won a couple of newcomer competitions when I started, which was really nice. But mm. at the same time, it meant people were like, well, he must be good then. He's won all these competitions. <laughs> and of course I wasn't. I was terrible. And still learning how to communicate my foibles and my oddities and my quirks that... Yes, yeah. You know, and I think it, it just, I think just being young and not knowing who I was as a person. Probably yeah, didn't. yeah. There's, there's a point that you've spoken about in the past where somebody, there was like a homophobic heckle and you left the stage. You kind of were just didn't want to understandably, you know, didn't want to really engage or have to have to do that. Was that a turning point in terms of things or was it like the uh, monologue, the Julie Walters monologue, was it that it took a little while after that for it to kind of register? As- I, was, I was sort of so taken back by it. And the comedy club mm. had turned around and gone, well, because you left the stage early, we can only give you half the money. And, oh, um, and I was like, oh, God. And I thought part of me was like annoyed that I wasn't able to handle the situation and I didn't have the the words or the kind of energy to um to respond um mm. but somehow there was this part of me this kind of natural sort of rene- renegade is that the right word somebody trying mm. to escape um yeah. there was this 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 rebel uh within that mm. wasn't going to conform and and just this tiny voice really going like no you shouldn't have to you shouldn't have to conform you shouldn't have to yeah um mm. you shouldn't have to oblige people who are going to you know, shout out and be horrible and yeah. have that attitude. And so, cause I, I thought, well, I could learn to deal with that situation, but actually then I'll potentially always end up performing to people who, who don't like me. And yeah. so actually mm-hmm. I, I think that was the beginning of me starting to go, you know what? I'm going to stand my ground and I'm going to be me. Didn't come quite as simply as this, but it was the beginning of me starting to go, no, I'm going to do what I want and I'm going to do it in such a way that people hopefully will just get on board with it or they won't, but at least they'll know, at least we'll all know where we stand. I think to that point, I'd been too worried about what people thought. Um, but after that, I started to go like, oh, you know, who cares? Yeah, definitely. The idea of stand-up being blokey, particularly at that time and kind of just generally is is one that I feel like most people have noticed and it tends to translate to panel shows and kind of a lot of the the TV, which you are a, you know, mm. bona fide star of. What was it like going into that world? Because you you seem to find a way to kind of be fully yourself within that kind of framework. You sort of bend them to your will rather than the other way around. And it's obnoxious really, isn't it? Um, <laughs> the, <laughs> um, I, well, I guess the part of me was like, I, I, I didn't start doing television until like, I've been doing stand up for 13 years and I thought, I don't know if I'm ever going to be good at this. I don't know if ever I'm going to have confidence. And it was, it was a few friends. It was Sarah Millican, mm. Rob Beckett, my friend Eleanor, my friend Susie Ruffle, um, and, and others, um, who sort of were like, just, just do it, you know, like just do it. And, and I sort of went on and I sort of had to like literally almost physically stop my inner monologue going, you're not very good. You don't belong here. And then, you know, sometimes there'd be blokes on it who'd be like, 
staring at you, like really aggressive, <laughs> trying to stare you out. And like, no, I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to do my, just got to get through it. And then I've done it. Then I've done it. And then you can't beat yourself out. I had in my mind, like you can't, they can't get you for trying. They can't be, you know, you're just doing your best. And so I just went along like that. And, and I just, people, people as well, when I first started, were like, oh, this man's very shouty. You got this man's very shouty. <laughs> And the truth of it was, I was just trying to shut up the voice in my head yeah. to go, yeah, just keep talking, yeah. just keep talking, just say your thing, then you've done your thing. Um, and, and, and actually, I think for me, a lot of the time, uh, the, the battle has not has been as much with the outside forces, but also the, the voices in my head going, no, not for you. You can't do this. No, you're not allowed to, you know, all those things. And I think that's, yeah. I think for a lot of people is, is, is there. And, you know, potentially those voices are set there by the outside world. So, um, but, but at the same time, it's, it's a, it's a battle. I think a lot of people are, are dealing with. And are those voices still, still there when you're presenting or have you kind of managed to conquer them? Um, I, I think I've managed to conquer them more. So the best way to conquer them in a good way, I suppose, but is to be happy. And I know it sounds really trite, but if you're having a nice time, then those voices aren't there so strongly, but that takes work. And, and so being relaxed and sort of you know, if somebody said to me once, nerves are just the flip side of excitement. And I try and remember that, that like, actually, maybe I'm not scared. I'm actually excited about being here. That's a good way of thinking about it. Yeah. 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 And you're kind of in the zone slightly. Yeah. Um, Bake Off, that must have been a stars aligning moment, right? When we go back to the Victoria Sponge and this interest that mm. you've had in food and baking. and Well, yeah. I mean, I feel so lucky to have had have been invited along to the the wonderful party that is the the bake off phenomenon <laughs> it's um mm. i think uh you know when it first started i really loved it and i love the sort of simplicity of it and mm. the kind of the happiness of it you know yeah. the, the the bake off shows have um which is essentially that everybody can come to this tent and do their best with making a cake and it doesn't matter who they are or to an extent, it doesn't matter what their experience level is, um, that they can have a go at doing it and, and, and all just sort of have, a, you know, and obviously it's competition, but it's, it sort of doesn't matter who wins because it's about just being there and being in the tent and just trying your best. And I think there's something very profound about that actually in our mm. ever kind of sort of, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think I always think social media, uh, for example, is what fractures the world so much, you know. And I think actually things which bring everybody together and go, "Hey, we're just going to make a nice cake and <laughs> and be nice," and just like I think that's such an important factor. And and so I've been very very um, lucky to be involved in in the in the shows here and co-hosting the Bake Off Professionals show. I love doing and I love working with with Liam Charles, who I co-host with, and and Benoit Cherish, our judges. Um, and it was for Liam and I. It was both our first presenting jobs, mm. and um, yeah. so I think we've really learned about about doing it, you know, on this show. And um, you know, the chefs we meet are wonderful, and chefs work so hard. And I've really felt for them mm. the last year. You know, it's, the hospitality industry has had such a tough time. Mm. Um, yeah. They work so hard, and they're often not recognised. Often, you know, in the back, you know, never seen by the by the by the restaurant customers and, and they work so hard. They're so brilliant and they try so hard. So it's been a real thrill to be involved in this show. Um, mm. And, um, and then doing extra slice has been wonderful too. Joe Brand is so generous to me. And, uh, and I sort of, I, I, I'm, I realize I probably seem like I'm quite caustic on there, but really what I'm <laughs> yeah. trying to do, what I'm trying, what I hope I do is kind of take that sort of, 
you know, that sort of mean, the mean, horrible people on Twitter who go like, well, this is about, I hate this. Oh, I hate that. And actually bring it out into the open and make it, do it to people's faces so they hopefully laugh. Yeah. And then yeah. we go, it's okay. It's not, yeah. the world isn't so frightening. That's what I try and do. Yeah. I mean, I hope, I, I do go around afterwards and go, I hope you don't mind I said that about your lemon sponge. It's actually very nice. <laughs> Have you learned any hints and tips while working on the Bake Off and, and taking them into your own kitchen? I mean, we saw your sugar craft skills <laughs> recently when you appeared on Celebrity Bake Off as a contestant. <laughs> you know what? I thought, well, you know, I co-host Bake Off Professionals. I know about, I know, I know about, I mean, they want me to, anyway, dre- absolutely dreadful. At one point, forgot to put sugar in the cake, just totally <laughs> no. panicked. That was on the one, the technical one, where there's yeah. like the ingredients are in front of you, the whole thing's explained. Didn't know how to use a whisk, froze something to the base of the freezer, ran out of time all the time. Sugar sculpt, I was like, I've seen these chefs do this sugar sugar sculpting so much. Like, how hard can it be? I mean, yeah, I know they get upset about the it. The trouble but is, please. they make it look so easy, don't it's they? so hard. It's so difficult. It's so, it's like, it's like, it's not glass. It's like, it's like something that falls apart in your hand. It's, I mean, it's, and it's terrifying. Hot. And it's hot. So you have to do it while it's hot. And as soon as it cools, it just becomes brittle and breaks. You can't, like, you can mould it for just a few seconds, really. But then, like, things like pulled sugar and stuff is so complicated, um, which I, I, you know, so basically I did something that looked like an ashtray. <laughs> when, you, when you're filming those shows, you're surrounded by sugar and sweet stuff. You know, what, what are you eating the rest of the time? Are you, does it just make you just want more and more sweet stuff or are you craving savoury? Well, I've, I've tried to be a bit healthier the last year or so. I think the lockdown's been quite good because, in a way, because mm. particularly in the early lockdown when it was sunny weather, I was trying to be like a bit healthier and, um, and, and try, cause, you know, it's so easy to live in a world where it's just like, just all in survival mode of just like grab a pizza, grab a sandwich. It's all quite bread based. So I was trying mm. to cut all of that out and I did lose some weight and felt really sort of healthy. Um, and uh, I was much more mindful of what I was eating. But when, when I'm here, yeah, it's very easy to fall back into that, like, just have a piece of, you know, like lemon meringue pie, which is my favourite <laughs> dessert in all the world. And, oh, there's six teams who've made them. Okay. Um, I guess I'll have to try them all. And um, and, and they, that is hard then. So I have to be quite str- I try and, like, have a miso soup at lunch rather than, okay. you know, the sort of catering. But it doesn't always work out like that. But, yeah, it's sort of very difficult. I find I find if I'm on the track of health eating, I'm all out healthy. But if I fall off the track and go onto the other track, which is eating cakes and bread, and um and just doing whatever I want, then it's all that, and then it just I can't be I can't be sort of like moderate. When you say here, you mean you're prepping to film a new series of uh, professionals, right? We we are doing Bake Off the Professionals, a new series. Um, we're doing it in a in a bubble, a bit like how they did the the normal Bake Off uh, last year, and um, it's been intense because you can't go anywhere or you know see anybody, so you, we're all sort of you know, locked together, which is, you know, it's sort of fun in its way, but it does mean that you do rely on treats like lemon meringue pies. Um, <laughs> and, um, and also, you know, I think as well, like it's, it's very, yeah, it's, 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 it's fun. It's always fun. And it's such a lovely team of people here um, in front of the camera and behind, behind the cameras. It's su- such a nice team, mm. but, um, but yeah, I have been falling into a way of just eat, eating, <laughs> eating too much. And you haven't been eating in restaurants and you've got restaurant chefs cooking for you. So you're just, what's what the whole country's after? Exactly, exactly. So I, um, I, I just think, you know, it's, yeah, I, I think you, you, you've got, you've got to, you've got to support the chefs, haven't you? You've got to show them that their work is appreciated. <laughs> Shoving their food in my gob. You just got, you've just got to. Tom, 
Tom, you're famous for living with your parents, but we've heard a rumour that changes afoot and that you've actually moved out. How have you gone about kitting up your new kitchen? Well, um, the thing is, I, um, I I did manage to finally buy my own place mm-hmm. um, and uh, it completed while um, I was here. <laughs> so I haven't been no. there. <laughs> so, but um, ironically, guess who's picked up the keys? My mum and dad. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> They'll just be filling it with Pyrex. They'll be, sure, yeah. Kind of... <laughs> yeah, we bought you some Pyrex. Have they moved you out of their house then while you've been away? I'm a bit worried they might move into my house and... <laughs> Um, <laughs> um, no, so I haven't been it, but I'm uh, I'm very lucky. The people who had it before did a great job of um, doing the kitchen, and um, that was one of the reasons I bought it. But um, you know, in, the thing I'm most excited about is cooking equipment, really. And of course, in my mind, I have like these dreams of having copper copper kitchenware. Um, but uh, the truth is, I asked Mary Berry about this once and she was like, no, don't get it. You'll spend your whole life polishing it. It's a nightmare. That's what I was going to say. As you were saying, copper was like, no. Don't do it. What sort of a cook are you, Tom? Like, what kind of things do you no. drawn to? Like, what are you what are you into at the moment? I mean, I liked, Jimmy, I like to think I'm the best. <laughs> but in truth... Apart from the greatest <laughs> ever. I like to think of myself as quite a sort of rustic cook. Mm-hmm. I love to roast a chicken. Lovely. It's yeah. what I love to do on a day off. I love yeah. to roast a chicken. Really good. Calms yeah. me, really soothing. I love to make a stock afterwards. Again, I feel like I'm living my Nigel Slater dream life when I do all those <laughs> things. I feel like that's what he would do. And, um, and, uh, and so that's that sort of thing I like to do, sort of, or uh, steak as well, I like to do as well. Mm-hmm. Bit of a carnivore, that's bad, isn't it, in our ever vegan age. But, um, my theory is we should eat good quality meat, but less. That's my theory. So is the roast chicken because you like the theatre of bringing it to the table and carving it? I love the theatre of it. I love the different ways of doing it. I love trying different things of like, do you roast it upside down? Do you spin it around halfway through? Do you put a glass of wine in the roasting pan? Do you... Do you spatchcock it? Do you th- I've done that on a barbecue. <laughs> Mum and dad got a bit impatient with that. It's th- always a date. You know, you have to be so careful. You can't serve chicken medium rare. And, no, um, it's got to be thoroughly cooked. It's got to be thoroughly cooked, listener. Don't, uh, don't fall for that trap. Um, but I love to... Um, yeah, I like, I like to do a barbecue as well. But I like... Yeah, I, I, I like to do the sides, present all the things on the table, serve everybody, everybody to go, wow, this is one, this is the best I've ever had. That's always my, mm. you know, low level ambition. This is the most incredible <laughs> meal I've ever had. Just thinking about your parents again, uh, you're clearly so close to them and you've got like such a kind of fond, like close relationship and they've sort of been there and with you throughout all those times of you like feeling like you've not fit in and now you're kind of celebrated for your eccentricity and your view on the world and stuff like that what's their what's their take on it i have to say they've been very they've always been very supportive and um my uh, well both my parents but my mum I think has always quite enjoyed the sort of theatricality of like, <laughs> like so, oh yeah it's, oh uh, well, don't say something um, and uh, and I think you know I think as well they enjoyed reading the book I think it was not to keep going on about the book I'm sorry hmm. but the um, but when they read that I think they kind of a lot of things made sense for mm. them you know because mm. I sort of talked about you know like coming out and stuff which you wouldn't I wouldn't talk about in depth with my mum and dad you know like I wouldn't you wouldn't sit down and be like well, when I was 15, I just felt this. And, yeah. you know, they wouldn't, for me anyway, that wasn't. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. allowed me that. So I think they've, they've been, they've, they've always been very supportive. So I'm very, very lucky mm. and very grateful to them. And, and actually, I do get on well with them. So actually living at home with them has been, across these years, has been really nice. And I think I'll probably, well, I'll probably miss them, but I'm not moving far away. Mm. So when you were living with your parents, who was doing most of the cooking? 
Was it them or you, or did you take it in turns? We, yeah, I think a bit, actually. Yeah, my, to be honest, though, the person who loves cooking the most is my dad. He loves it. He really gets into it. Um, he There's a fishmonger that's opened fairly near mm-hmm. to us, and so he loves to go up there on a Saturday as a treat and buy something. Um, and that's really nice, you know, and it feels like a good thing to do, like I say, to sort of support a, uh, a local supplier and, and, and sort of buy, if, if you're going to buy meat or fish try and buy a high quality version of it mm. but yeah, less well, often and appreciate yeah high well high in welfare and stuff and um i think i feel i hope that's better maybe not mm. i'm sure there'll be somebody going like yeah, no is. but he he's got really into that and you know he did once do a uh, try and do a stir fry in the microwave which was a low point <laughs> oh, but, dear. Um, that was a bad point but you know we move beyond that now so we try not to talk about it and just thinking about your kind of formative eating experiences and their restaurant mm-hmm. experiences. Um, what's this uh, trip to uh, France, to Calais, like with your with your neighbours? What happened there? I told the school I was going on an open day to look at a university. Um, but instead, what I was actually doing was going for lunch in Calais with my mum and dad and Jean and Dennis from next door. <laughs> because Jean and Dennis had stumbled upon this. I don't know. They found this restaurant in Calais called uh, Le Chanel. Le Chanel, Le Chanel, Le Chanel, um, which is in Canada. I think it's still there. And it was the most incredible experience of my life and probably was one of those formative times that did set mm. the ball rolling for mm. what I do now. Um, it was such, like eating in France is such an extraordinary experience mm. where there's this kind of effortless formality um, that feels so graceful and so like, so, I don't know, it's just so elegant. Um, and so um, it's, it's quite a formal restaurant and we had, I had fruits de mer, which I'd never had before. Mm-hmm. I had oysters for the first time. And it was, oh, it was so sensational. And, um, and the kind of idea of just taking time over food and just enjoying, luxuriating in it, sitting in these kind of quite high backed chairs, um, <laughs> quite full, like lots of glasses on the table. But how many, gla- it wasn't a big table, but how many mm-hmm. glasses they put out? There was always space. Yeah. And the waiter was always like, just maybe just like place down a glass, place down a glass, an amused bouche, um, <laughs> funny mouth, as we say in England. <laughs> And, and, you know, just enjoying all these little, having cheese before, uh, before the dessert, mm, very nice. French thing to do nice. with no, um, you know, like we always have like, uh, uh, like Jacob's water biscuit or something. <laughs> um, yeah. They don't bother with that. It just had a knife and fork and a little bit of, uh, dried fruit and some nuts mm. and just ate the cheese with a knife and fork. Oh, yeah. again, just so yeah. perfect. <laughs> so how old are you there and how old is everyone else at the table? Just to kind of set the scene. I'm 16 and I would say Gina and Dennis at this point were in their 70s. So <laughs> yeah. it was um, it was pretty cool. Uh, and I was a pretty cool teenager. And <laughs> How most 16-year-olds rebel. Like, you know, when, when they were skiving in Bromley, that was where most people were going, I think. Well, Jimmy, can I say? That was my way of rebelling. I was doing the thing that nobody else was doing. People were like, well, I don't know. Yeah, um, yeah no, I that's felt- true. Yeah, no, that's the ultimate rebellion. Please tell me there were like silver domes on the table coming up with the food that with all of that theatre. Do you know what there was? Um, there was a what I've always enjoyed about continental Europe is putting a cloche over a butter dish. Oh, I yes. think that's lovely. <laughs> yeah, have you seen those ones? Those little like yes. very smooth round butter dish with a little cloche on it. Mm. Um, love that. They, I don't know if they had the cloches on the table. No, they didn't. I don't think they did. But they did have lovely big plates with different like um, lattice designs on the plates. Again, I just thought. And you could see the kitchen. You could see all the chefs, like, cleaning the kitchen down at the end of the lunch service. Just This kitchen was spotless. Yeah, yeah. They worked as a team, and it was all sort of such... It was really inspiring. I love eating in France. What about eating out now? Do you do much eating out in restaurants now, or is it 
Well, I can't, so no. Well, no, no. <laughs> in normal time. Sometimes I'll go and uh, take a sandwich in the garden. Does that count? Uh, but um, <laughs> the um, my fa- well, I worked. My first job was working as a waiter in in my dad's golf club, which um, I didn't really enjoy. I had to push around the dessert trolley, mm. um, but I'd always take too long over it, and they'd be like, "Hurry up! Other people have got to be served." <laughs> Oh, and I like the thi- Jimmy, like you say, I like the theatre of it. Yeah. But then I went to work. My friend Bree, her mum and dad owned a restaurant in West Wickham. Jimmy, do you know it? Yeah. Um, opposite the swimming yeah, bar called called Prima Donnas. And they opened that when we were in year seven together. And they'd opened that restaurant. And Bree's dad um, from Crete. And um, their mum and dad had met while her mum was travelling around Greece. And so he brought back all this... He brought, they brought this, this energy, which was again, this mm. kind of continental European sense of eating out and making eating out fabulous and fun and not stuffy, but still has an elegance about it and has a trendiness about it. And it was, anyway, I ended up working there as a, as a, as a dessert waiter when I was about 18 and I loved, loved working there. And I felt that was the first time I really enjoyed the, the theatre of restaurants and Prima Donna's is still there. It's been going strong and it's lovely. And Pat, the chef who owns it as well, uh, with Monica, his wife, and she did desserts. Um, mm-hmm. And I learned so much working there. What do you have before or after you, when you're performing? Do you eat before or after? Do you always have, eat the same thing? I sometimes eat before a show, but what I really like to do is eat after a show. But you, mm-hmm. it, you have to be in a place where you know that there's a restaurant that opens late. But I love something about eating late just feels so glamorous to me and so like like I'm in New York or something, you know, just mm. like okay. go go down to this trendy little Italian place or something. Um, I love to eat late, and I remember. When I was on tour with Sarah Millican, I supported her um, for a while. We were in Dublin and we went, I think it's called The International. Mm-hmm. And it felt very glamorous. We went there after the meal and it was very like booth seating with pictures of like, you know, various stars that had dined there before. It was very like kitsch, but in a really fun way. And I love that. I love that glamour. Are you one of these comics that's missing tour and kind of performing live? Or are you kind of, uh, are you kind of enjoying sort of getting to diversify and do other other bits that you wouldn't have you were you had your own lockdown chat show right at the advent of, uh, of all of this didn't you Thank where, you, for you, um, that, where uh, you you interviewed the same guest what was her name and what was the situation and Linda, who was made of balloons and um, because you can <laughs> speak to anybody and um I just had a dream of making a show like that and so I was like this is the time this is the time so I just did that uh on a daily Basis. And I sort of thought no one was watching. I thought like, this is basically a breakdown. This is what I'm doing. <laughs> live streaming a breakdown. And then people, when I stopped doing it, people were like, what's happened to Linda? We miss Linda. I was like, oh, I didn't think anybody cared. I'll tell her. If, I, if only I'd known, I wouldn't have deflated her. But I, I love going to different places and I love going to different communities and different types of performance spaces. I love going to art centres and I love going to... Um, you know, like just different places you wouldn't normally go to. Places that, you know, perhaps, in, you know, if you if you just were in one place all the time, you wouldn't necessarily visit. Mm. And you realise there's so many great things and so many great people. And just so, yeah, I just, I love, I love that side mm. of touring. I love, um, yeah, I love all of it. I love staying in hotels. So I, <laughs> I quite like it really. Yeah, um, but yeah. Um, so I do miss it. And I do hope that, I my feeling is that when people are able to go back to, to doing things again, it will really lift and people will, you know, there'll yeah. be lots of, hopefully we'll learn, we'll, we'll remember to really celebrate everything in life, I think. Yeah, completely. Have you got any staples that you always have in your cupboards or will have in your new cupboards when you move in, when you do your big first shop? I feel like I need to ask you about this because I, I was thinking I need to get a spice rack, don't I? Definitely. The best thing to do is buy spices as you're using them and then build up your 
collection from that. I would just definitely get some pool bibear. The uh, oh yeah, yeah the um, what's that? It's Turkish red pepper flake type things. Is it? Yeah, uh, it's delicious. Some people. Some people can refer to it as Aleppo pepper. Aleppo pepper, that's it, yeah. But Paul B, but it's just mm. delicious. You can put it on salads and it kind of lifts anything, everything. Lifts it up. Really and- good. Oh, that sounds fun. <laughs> okay, I'll get a bit of that. Because I like how those like flavours become, you know, flavours du jour. The people mm. suddenly like learn about what like green peppercorns, I seem to remember at one point being a thing. Mm. And um um Sichuan pepper I've noticed gets mm. used in things quite a lot. But I think we crave this kind of yeah, bit of punch as well. Zingy, like a bit of, yeah, 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 a bit of punch, bit of oomph. Okay, okay, I'm going to get into that. Fine, because yeah, it's difficult to know. Like, what is the what are the base cupboard? Yeah, where to start? Yeah, you just kind of like chaotically accumulate them, or you do if you're me, like just kind yeah, of just you know, like there's that. like seven cumins, and like you can't find the one thing that you want. Yeah, or um, like honey and stuff like that. That can be really expensive, can't yeah. it? And I bought that on like manuka honey. I bought that on tour. And then being like, and then I bring it back. So I'm like, yeah, I'm not throwing that away. And I'm like, do you want this honey? Like, this honey? It's like, yeah, it's 25 quid. But you're not, you're not somebody who goes back to Marmite on toast or baked beans on toast when you go home. The thing that in our house is the, the way my dad shows affection is uh, a bacon sandwich. It has to be toasted, possibly um, a nice sourdough. Mm. Uh, but, but to be honest, I'll take anything. Anything's fine. I really love that idea of having kind of food as an almost the meeting point families can be so different can't they but then there are these kind of central dishes or certain things that you eat that you all love and it's really great to have that yeah I think those are the moments that we've always dad has always mum and dad actually have always been encouraging that we would sit together and have meals Mm. rather than we do have dinner on our lap sometimes Mm. but um particularly like Sunday lunch well, it's usually Sunday dinner, actually, by the time we, it's normally late in the day. We're not, we're not early birds, but like that mum likes to do that. And I think that's, I think it's really nice actually to have a meal if you can, um, where as a, as a family, um, particularly if you're living together and you have nowhere else to go, <laughs> but you <laughs> sit together and, and have that time and just catch up on the day. And, and, and it's, it's not, a difficult thing to do. It can be with any meal. It can be, it doesn't matter what you're eating. It doesn't matter. But it's just nice to come together, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Well, Tom Allen, thank you so much for your time. It's been great. Your book is fantastic. We look forward to Bake Off the Professionals. Really excited for that. And um, yeah, thank you. Thanks all. Lovely to chat to you and and, um, see you guys soon, I hope. You've been listening to Life on a Plate from Waitrose. I'm Jimmy Famarewa. Thank you to my co-host, Alison Okavy, and our guest, Tom Allen. To learn more about the series, go to waitrose.com forward slash podcast. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Listener.